How's everybody doing? Doing okay? All right. My name is Todd. I'm the lead pastor. I got to meet some of you. If you don't know me, uh, that's kind of my role around here. Um, we're, welcome to, to Cornerstone. Like our heart is, is that you would not only encounter a group of people that have experienced and know Jesus Christ, but our true heart always is that people have an opportunity to know, love, and, and follow Jesus Christ. And so if you're here today, again, like I said, we hope we provide an atmosphere for you to truly feel like you're welcome here. You're a part of it. We want to show you hospitality. But our whole heart really is that behind it is that you would know Jesus Christ. That's our heart in there. And not only that, but where's, I thought I saw Johnny. Dude, I missed your baptism last week. Dude, congratulations. That was awesome. Yeah, that was so cool. <clears throat> we'll have a baptism, I think, next weekend as well. Just It's been fun to watch just the Spirit of God doing work in the lives of people. So one of the things that I get to talk about today before Christian comes up and preaches is we're going to have a little bit of a, a change on our staff. Nobody's leaving and moving to places like Georgia or Wisconsin, just so you know. Nobody's leaving. But we are going to readjust things. We, you guys know our heart. We really want to see disciples being made. And so we're going to shift Mike Guerin out of student ministry, and he's going to become an associate pastor overseeing everything from what we call from the cradle to college and just making sure every kid that comes through here not only has the opportunity to know Jesus, but also to be a disciple of Jesus who knows how to make disciples of Jesus. And so he's going to be given oversight to that. And with him exiting, then what we're going to do is, is that we are going to bring on somebody to be the director of student ministry, which is Thomas Shear, and I think he's over here with his family. <clears throat> so we're super excited about that. Um, <clears throat> he will be starting up on, uh, on April 4th is when he'll be starting up. And so we're, we're super excited. We took time. We worked through a lot of things, both with him and the rest of the family. And, uh, and it really is. I mean, we think he's going to be a phenomenal uh, addition to staff along with this. He's, I love his family, too. I think just who they are as a family is a, is a couple and a family that we're, we're, we do believe not only knows Jesus and loves Jesus, but wants others to do the same. And so I'm going to really let, quickly let you, just in case people don't know, I'm going to let you introduce your family a little bit, and then uh, we'll pray over you. So, All right. Good morning. Uh, well, I'm Thomas Shear, and uh, this lovely young lady next to me, this is Emma, my wife Laura, and Noah. So, and... Uh, it has been a privilege to serve and be sent out by you as a missionary, and it is, it is a thrill to now be here, a part of the staff here at church, and be able to work with, with junior high and high school. And, and here's the heart of it, is that we have found in Christ a treasure, something precious and valuable, worth living and worth dying for, and that vision of a precious and glorious and wonderful Jesus, that's what we, that's what we want to, to communicate and display before our students here at Cornerstone, so that whether that's locally or whether that's, you know, one day they come to you as parents and they say, hey mom, I think I want to go to Africa. Like, you're like, well, let's do that because the name of Jesus is, is, is precious and valuable and people over there, they need to hear about him too. So um, that's our heart and, and we're just thrilled to be able to do it with you guys here to be a part of the ministry here. So, yeah. All right. <clears throat> Would you join me just praying uh, over them real quickly and uh, then we'll bring Christian up. Father, we praise you. We thank you so much just for the way you orchestrate our lives. Thanks for just the sheer family, uh, the simple reality that you chose to bring 
them through a series of steps that we get to experience the blessing as a local church of, of them as a family joining us in this little kind of part of the map to, to proclaim the goodness and the greatness of Jesus Christ. I pray for them all. Father, would you give them just enough trials to make sure that they stay humble? But Father, also just enough of those moments that bring joy, that keep them excited about what it means to be followers of Jesus. But above all, would your son be honored through our students here at Cornerstone Community Church? So we praise you. We thank you, Father. Unleash them. We thank you so much for your word. Pray for Christian right now as he comes. Would we have receptive hearts, open ears, and would you allow him to communicate the amazingness of 1 Thessalonians? So we love you. We praise you, Father, in your precious name. Amen. Nice work. <laughs> I'm so excited to have you with us, Thomas. Um, I think it's also a really power move to match the senior pastor when you're being announced on stage in your wardrobe. So part of a, we're going to send out something on social media asking who wore it better in a little bit. So that'll be good. Um, good morning. My name is Christian. I'm another one of the pastors and elders here. Um, have the opportunity to get to open up God's word with you. I think I went too far forward. Billy told me I'd be in the shadows if I stayed there. So there we go. What we're gonna be doing this morning is gonna be fun. We're, we're continuing our study in the book of First Thessalonians. This morning we'll be in chapter five. We'll be looking at verses four through 11, which is really the conclusion of, I guess you could say, Paul's end time section of this letter. The, the, the section of the letter where he's talking about the return of Jesus and this big, huge concept of the day of the Lord that Bob Krejcik took us through last week. But being that this is the kind of the conclusion of this little mini section within the letter, I think it's important to take a couple minutes off the front end just to remind us of where we've been of what he's already shown us. So if you have your Bibles open or something on your, on your phone, or if you need a Bible, we got some ushers who'd love to put one in your hands, or you can follow along up on the screens. But this section began back in chapter four, verse 13, where Paul makes this statement. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed. Throughout this letter, he keeps saying, you don't need me to write you about this stuff. You already know this, you're already doing it. I'm just reminding you. But then we saw how here in chapter four, verse 13, he says, here's a gap. Here's the information you don't have. And it's about those who have fallen asleep, Christians who have died. And he says, you need to know something about them so that you can grieve with a hope that the world apart from Jesus does not have. And he talks about how it's all tied up in this idea of what will happen with those who are alive or those who died at the return of Jesus, this parousia word that, that Todd unpacked for us a couple weeks ago, this royal arrival of Jesus from heaven to earth as king. And on this day, at the coming of the Lord, those who have died will be raised to life first. They'll get to join the celebration first, and then those who are alive will get to join and, be, and meet them with the Lord in the air to escort him into his kingdom on earth. I, I agree with what Todd said a couple weeks ago that I think that's the best way to understand what's going on here. This idea of the, the coming of Jesus and us meeting him, the, the most natural way the Thessalonians would have heard that was, oh yeah, that's like what happens when a king or a high official comes. You, those who are dignitaries go out and meet him outside the city and welcome him in there. I think that's probably the most natural way to read it. But like we talked about, that's not the only way that you can interpret this passage. And this is one of those things that we as your elders believe is like a, a secondary doctrine. It's one that we can hold different opinions on, but we're going to seek to guide you in a consistent way as elders. 
And if you're curious, what is this whole primary, secondary doctrines? And there's even this other level of what we would call tertiary or third level doctrines. If you're curious about what all that means, I would just encourage you, mark your calendars. April 10th, 6.30 in this room will be our next Core 4 intro class. And that's going to be the one on basic doctrine where we're just going to kind of go through why it is that we believe that it's helpful to have these different levels of certainty and uh, other ones where we can say, hey, there's, there's a breadth of opinion for us. So that's, again, that's coming up on April 10th. But a couple weeks back, I loved the way as Todd walked us through this section, as many times as our minds go to the how is all this going to work, how does the choreography of all these events work, and especially the when question, when will Jesus return, when will this day of the Lord come? I love the way that Todd reminded us the most important thing is not when or how, but who who we get to be with. And I love that there. We will always be with the Lord. That's the focus. We will always be with the Lord. And he says in verse 18 to encourage each other with those words. Use this as a way to bolster each other to this perseverance, this this idea, let's keep going and following Jesus, whether it's easy or hard, especially sometimes it's harder when it's easy. Because we get tempted and to drift off and focus on so many other things. He says, encourage each other. Jesus is coming again. It will be glorious. It will be worth it. Stay the course. But Paul knows that his readers, both the Thessalonians and us, it's almost we can't help it but go to that when question. When is all this going to happen? And then so last week, as Bob took us into the first part of chapter 5, we saw the way that Paul starts to address that when question. When he says, now concerning these times and seasons, brothers, you have no need for anything to be written to you. You already understand about this. And I appreciate the way Bob pointed out that that Paul's likely referencing the words of Jesus here. When he uses that phrase, times and seasons, he's alluding to the words of Jesus that were later recorded in the book of Acts chapter 1. When Jesus is talking with his disciples right before his ascension into heaven. And he said... It's not for you to know the times and seasons of my return and the coming of my kingdom. That's not your job. The Father's fixed that by his own authority. But here's what you do need to know and what you do need to do. Our job is not to discern and decipher the timing and the sequence of events. Here's our job. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is our job, to witness for Jesus, to, through our words and our actions, to say, yes, Jesus is Lord. He is God in human flesh, the Savior of the world, the victor over sin and death. And he says to his disciples, start right here where you are in Jerusalem, and then from there, beyond there. And, and I believe that's really instructive for us as a local church, too. As a local church in the city of Simi Valley, our primary place where we are called to represent Jesus is here. And then out from there to participate in the sending and supporting of those who get to now take this gospel and make disciples in other places and even other parts of the world. But that's why the church exists. This is why throughout the the whole fall, you keep hearing us come back to this idea that the church exists to be disciples who make disciples, to witness for Jesus through our life and actions. And we've seen that throughout the book of 1 Thessalonians as well. Remember back at the beginning of chapter 4, When Paul says, remember, finally, brothers, we ask and we urge you in the Lord that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, you live before God to honor him with our lifestyles. 
Just as you should be doing, so you do it more and more. And then at the end of that section in verse 12, he says, you also ought to walk properly before outsiders. This life before God, this life before others to put the character and truth of who Jesus is on display. That's why we exist. And that's also why Paul says, this is what you're already doing. This is already the reality I see in your lives. And even in the midst of trial and even in the midst of questions about what's to come, stay on target. There's such a focus in this letter that's like that, that, that classic scene from the first Star Wars movie. When they're, they're, remember they're flying through that canyon on the Death Star? And there's TIE fighters coming in and trying to shoot at them and there's all the cannons and stuff like that. And you've got the younger pilots going, there's too many of them, we can't stay in. And then what does the, like the older chubby pilot in the X-Wing keep saying? Stay on target. Stay on target. I know you want to bail out. I know this looks tough. I know it's hard. I know there's risks. There's obstacles, but you're on track. Stay on target. That's so much the theme of this letter. We've seen how encouraging Paul is. There's not any major corrections, rebukes that he gives in this letter, but so often what we see right there, you're already doing this. Stay on target. Do it more and more. Specifically, we're going to see what does it mean for us to stay on target in the passage we're going to look at today. I'm going to give you a teaser for where we'll land at the end. Here's what Paul says in Thessalonians 5 verse 8. Since we long to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. What does it look like to stay on target in the task that Jesus has given us? It's to build our lives around these ideas of faith in Jesus, of love for Jesus and those around us, of hope in the glorious return of Jesus. This is how we stay on target. Not developing elaborate charts and tables for end times events, not scouring the news for clues on how current events relate to different bowls or trumpets or seals in the book of Revelation, but living lives of faith in Jesus, of love for Jesus, of hope in Jesus, in real day-to-day living. This is what it looks like for us to live with a sense of anticipation and readiness for the coming of Jesus. I'm gonna come back to this at the end. But he keeps, he keeps hitting in this section of chapter five on this idea of the day of the Lord. And I thought Bob did such a good job with that last time. He says, for you yourselves are fully aware that this day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Bob did such a good job last week of unpacking this big theme of the day of the Lord. He used this uh, definition from a guy named Keith Matheson where he said this, that the day of Yahweh or the day of the Lord would be the time when God as the great divine warrior would go into battle against his enemies, defeating them on behalf of his people. And Bob showed us last week how this day of the Lord is another one of these already not yet things. That throughout history, there's been many days of the Lord when God has acted decisively, bringing judgment against his enemies and bringing deliverance to his people. But all those, I guess you could say, little D day of the Lord's are all just like leading up to this capital D day of the Lord when God will act in final judgment and bringing ultimate eternal salvation to his people. But that day of the Lord, like Bob talked about last week, there's two sides to the coin. 
There is destruction to those opposed to God. And there is deliverance and salvation and even glory for those who submit to God by faith through Jesus Christ. Last week, Bob really, uh, he, he, he was a good sport and got to do the bad news side of that story, right? He looked at the tail side of that coin. And in chapter uh, five, verse four, is when Paul kind of turns it over and he talks about the positive side. What is, this, what is our relation? If you're a follower of Jesus, what is your relation and expectation in regard to the day of the Lord? Look what he says in verse four. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You're not in darkness. As a matter of fact, right before that, when he talks about the surprising sudden destruction that will come on unbelievers on that day, he says, you're already fully aware of this. You're not going to be taken off guard because you already know about this. And not only that, you can't be surprised like, a, like by a thief in the night because you're not in the night anymore. You're not living in darkness anymore. Again, this is one of Paul's earliest letters, but we see throughout the rest of the letters how often Paul comes back to this idea of darkness as a description for life apart from Jesus. For the current condition of those who have not trusted in Jesus Christ. For our condition before God opened our eyes to who Jesus is. Being in darkness. We see like in Romans 1, when, when Paul's talking about the way that sin has, has corrupted us, our rebellion against God has twisted us. He talks about how sin makes our hearts darkened and foolish. In Ephesians 4, when talking about, the, again, those apart from Christ, he says that they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of hearts. And that is never written with an air of superiority that we're somehow better or smarter than others. But just that reality, apart from Christ, we cannot navigate life with clarity and wisdom because we can't see which way's up. And yet, the amazing promise of the gospel, the amazing truth for those of us who've trusted in God is that through no effort of our own, God turned the lights on. I love the way that Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4. He likens it to Genesis 1, that creation account when God says, let there be light. And he says, in the same way that God in the beginning said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. Paul's point in all these passages and here in, second, in First Thessalonians is to say that for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we are no longer in darkness because we've come to Jesus who is the light of the world. And he says, because of that, you will not be surprised when the day of the Lord comes. Not that you'll know when it's coming, but you know that it is coming. And as a very, in a very real way, he says, your identity is already being shaped by that coming ultimate day of the Lord. Look what he says in the next verse, in verse five. Why won't we be just, we be, let me try again. Why won't we be surprised by the day of the Lord like a thief in the night? Because we are children of light. We are children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. That phrase, you see it often in the Bible, and it's, it's common throughout ancient cultures as well. 
To speak of, of someone or a group of people being a child or children of something, blank, whatever that blank might be, it's always a way to talk about someone's relationship or their participation in something. Think about it like this. In, in, in 1 John chapter 1, the Apostle John makes a statement where he says that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And you have, if you have come to God by faith in Jesus Christ, you have been adopted as his son or daughter and you are now a child of the God who is light. If the day of the Lord is the Lord's day to bring ultimate judgment and salvation and that Lord is your daddy, the day of the Lord is your dad's day. You're not in the darkness. You have a fundamentally different relationship to the judgment that's coming on that day because you have been united by faith with the Lord of that day. You're not, there's nothing to be feared in that regard. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is who you are now. You are no longer in night. You are no longer in darkness. The day of the Lord defines your reality more than the bad day you had this week. You are defined more by the victory of Jesus than your own failures or successes. Your current struggles, the way that right now you wish your life, your character was different. The reason why you no longer have to stay in those things, why, why there is that hope for transformation like we talked about at the Core 4 class last week, is because Jesus has won the victory and you are united with him by faith and what the Lord has started in you, he will complete at the day of Jesus Christ. This is who we are now. This new identity that we have as children of the day shapes the way we live today. Look at the way he continues. Again, he says in verse five, we're children of light. We're children that we're not in the night or the darkness. So then he continues in verse six. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and keep sober. What's he talking about here? Let's not sleep as others do. Again, he's talking metaphorically about sleep again. We've seen that throughout this section, right? Back in chapter 4, 13 through 18, he speaks of sleep as a euphemism for what? For death. The death of a believer before the return of Jesus. That's not the way that he's talking about sleep here. He's not talking about death anymore, but he's also still not talking about literal sleep because he tells us not to do it. And you can't do that forever, right? Sleep is a legitimate need. It's part of one of the things that God created us to need. So telling us not to sleep is like telling someone not to blink or breathe. They better do it again at some point because they need it, right? So what's the euphemism? What's the metaphor that he's using when he's talking about sleep here? Here's what I think it is. Paul's just adding to this contrast he's building in this whole passage between those who are still in darkness or in night and those who through Jesus Christ have been brought into light, into day. And so he picks two activities that people typically do at night, sleeping and drunkenness. Two activities, not only that people do at night, but two activities that if you do them, render you unaware and unprepared for something that might come like a thief in the night. 
Does that make sense? Again, I think this is one of those places where Paul is alluding to the words of Jesus. Look what he goes on to say in verse 7. He says, for those who sleep, when do they sleep? Typically at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Again, I think this is a place where Paul, just like he did earlier, talking about times and seasons, he's alluding to the words of Jesus. This time it's words of Jesus that were later recorded in the book of Matthew, chapter 24. Take a look at this with me real quick. What does it mean to stay awake or to be sober? Look what he says. Jesus himself. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Do you see thief in the night, that same language that Paul's using here? Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. Be on guard, be watchful. But this watchfulness, this readiness that Jesus is talking about, it's not like just a static stationary reality. I was thinking about it this week, like, like those, uh, the soldiers at Buckingham Palace who stand in their little booth with the big furry hat and people take pictures of them and stuff like that, and, but they never move. Unless there's a threat, of course. But their whole job is stand perfectly still, look totally straight ahead. You try to make them laugh, but typically can't do it. The only time they move is when they change the guards, right? That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not calling us to, okay, I'm just gonna camp myself right here, keep my eyes fixed on the horizon and wait for Jesus to come back. The, the watchfulness, the wakefulness he's talking about, is an, it's an active reality. There are things we are to do to be ready and watchful for the return of Jesus. Look what he goes on. Jesus goes on to say in the very next verses, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his whole household to give them their food at the proper time? This person who's been entrusted by the master to take good care of the master's things while he's away. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Find him about the master's business when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But then he flips the coin around. But if that wicked servant says to himself, this has taken a lot longer than I thought. My master's delayed. And he begins to beat his fellow servants and then eats and drinks with drunkards. Oop, there's that drunkenness idea that Paul's talking about. Then the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he does not know and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's gentle Jesus just soothing our fears and being so kind, right? Make sure your view of Jesus is as well-rounded as Jesus himself is. There is such amazing grace and forgiveness and patience. And that if you thumb your nose at his word and his expectations, if you just phone it in, if you just try to numb yourself with alcohol or other chemicals to get through life, and you neglect the master's business of witnessing for the truth of who Jesus is in every tribe and tongue and language and nation, our master is coming back. 
And he says, I want to find you busy about my business. I want to find you so doing. Is that, does that shape your life? When you build your schedule for this next week, do you think, I want my master, if Jesus comes back this week, I want him to find me faithful, not perfect. We will continue to sin and to struggle. There will be that need for confession and recognizing where we still need to grow. And yet, are you giving your time to the things that you know your king has given you to do? Blessed is the man whose master will find him so doing when he comes. He stays on target. He doesn't check out. He stays ready, stays busy, not just for the sake of being busy, but because he wants to be found so doing when Jesus comes back. Do you see the way that Paul is echoing Jesus' words here in 1 Thessalonians? Stay awake, stay sober, be active, watchful, ready, because the day of the Lord is coming and we're children of that day and we don't know when it is, but we can be actively ready. How? What does this readiness look like in our day-to-day living? Look at what he goes on to say in verse 8. This soberness, this readiness looks like this. It's having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. I told you we'd come back here. There definitely is like soldier armor imagery here. But those three words that I highlighted there, faith, love, and hope, those ring a bell for you at all. Maybe even within this letter of 1 Thessalonians. Flip a page or two over. Look at chapter one, verse three. At the very beginning, as Paul is commending the Thessalonians for what he's already seen and heard in them, look what he says. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering your work that's produced by faith, your labor that's produced by love, and your steadfastness produced by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know where that Jesus is right now? He's before our God and Father in heaven. He says, I've already seen this faith and love and hope in you. I love when Todd was kicking off this series for us back in January. He talked about how those three ideas of faith and hope and love and the work and labor and steadfastness that comes from them, that those attributes both come from Jesus. He's the source of our faith and hope and love and he's the object. Our faith is directed toward him. We trust who he is and what he said he will do. Our love is directed toward him. We love because he first loved us. And not only do we love him, but we seek to love one another like he's loved us. Our hope is in him and what he has already done and yet promised to do. And Paul's point in connecting these three same attributes of faith, hope, and love from chapter one is to show us here in five verse eight, that in the same way that faith, hope, and love motivate our work and labor and endurance, they're also what guard us and prepare us for the return of Jesus. Put those things on like armor. Not, he doesn't say put them on, he says you've already done it. You see that? Having already armed yourself, now behave in a proper way. The soldier who gets his armor on doesn't go to bed afterward. It's not very comfortable to sleep in in the first place, right? You're armed for this. Now walk appropriately. I also think it's worth pointing out, did you notice the two pieces of armor that he specifies here? A breastplate 
and a helmet. These are protective pieces of armor. They're not weapons. They are not things that we use to wage war on others. They are things that we arm ourselves and arm one another with to protect and guard and prepare us. Because at the end of the day, it's not about us fighting the battle. Our king is coming back and he will win the battle. He will wage war on our behalf. That is really good news. I love it there at the end of verse eight. We put on the helmet of the hope of salvation. Not just a generic hope, but the hope of our deliverance, our rescue, our salvation from Jesus when he comes. Look at the way he goes on in verse nine. We put on the helmet of the hope of salvation because we know that God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain that salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's one of those clearest places where we see the two sides of the coin of the day of the Lord. It will be both wrath, judgment, for those who reject God's offer of grace and forgiveness and new life through Jesus. But it will also be salvation, deliverance. After Easter, we're gonna get into the book of Thessalonians. It's really hard to say, Second Thessalonians. And in chapter one, especially, we'll see even more clearly the way that this same day of the Lord brings about both destruction for one and salvation and glory for others. But again, here, Paul clearly states that God has not destined us for wrath, but he has destined us instead for salvation. Why not wrath? Because look at what Jesus has done for us. Look at verse 10. Jesus died for us. Why do we have no need to fear the coming judgment of God? Because through Jesus Christ on that good Friday, God's justice was satisfied on our behalf. He is our substitute, amen? But get this, not only did Jesus satisfy God's justice by his death, Jesus also satisfied God's honor by perfectly obeying his father to the point of death. He's satisfied. He, he made up for the way in which we have dishonored God through our rebellion, our desire to live the lives that God's given us our own way. Jesus said in that garden, not my will but yours be done and was obedient even to the point of death. He satisfied the honor of God on your behalf. Not only that, through Jesus' death on the cross, he waged the ultimate battle, the decisive defeat of Satan and sin and death. He won the victory through his death and resurrection. So why do we not need to fear even death? Because Jesus made a way out the other side of the grave. And now for those who come to him by faith in Jesus Christ, we have the promise that not even death itself can separate us from his love or even ultimately from his presence because he will come again to take us to be with him. If you are in Jesus Christ by faith, you share in all that Jesus has accomplished through his death and resurrection. If you have not come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, this is why we keep telling this story every week different nuances, different emphases, but this is the one thing we have to offer to the world. And it's amazing. 
Jesus Christ as the one hope of mankind, the one who brings God and man together, who one day will make all of heaven and earth new. He is the biggest deal there ever is. That's why we don't get tired of talking about him. Today is the day to come and trust in that Jesus. He is our great warrior who did battle against his enemies and defeated them through an act of sacrificial love. And he says, that's the way to life. Come follow me in that. Look again what he says there in verse 10. Jesus died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Oh, what a good promise. Here at the end of the section, Paul brings us back to that same hope he reminded of reminded us of back in chapter four. He's using that word sleep again, but again, we have to think carefully. Up to this point in chapter five, he's been using sleep to talk about those who are unprepared and unaware of Jesus' coming. I don't think that's the way he's using it here. I think he's going back to the way he talked about sleep in the earlier part of chapter four as a way of talking about the difference between being alive or, or dead. He says, Jesus died for us so that again, when he returns, whether you and I are alive at that time or we sleep in the sleep of death, we will be with him forever. The dead in Christ will rise first and those alive will meet them in the air and we will be with the Lord forever. That is good news. So when we think about the coming of Jesus, when we think about the day of the Lord, remember It's natural to ask the when question. It's good to study scriptures to try to understand the how question. But the most important part of all of it is who? Jesus, our King, our Lord, and the promise that whether living or dead, we will be with him forever. And so Paul concludes in verse 11. Therefore, again, just like he said at the end of chapter four, Encourage each other. Encourage, give each other courage with these words. Boldness. We can endure. We don't need our best life now. We don't need to bend the world to our wills and our sensibilities. We've not been destined for wrath, but actually earlier on in chapter three, Paul made it very clear, we are destined for afflictions in this life. We are destined that as we seek to represent Jesus well, it will make life in this world harder, not easier. That's why we need encouragement, boldness from one another. The ultimate victory is sure and it will be worth it, but it will not always be easy. This morning in our global team meeting, we were talking about uh, some of our partners in different parts of the world, particularly in some Middle Eastern countries that are while we've been dealing with more restrictions than we've ever experienced over the last couple of years sometimes to the way that we can move and operate in our country, the gospel, gosh, is bearing fruit in some incredible ways in the midst of affliction. And it's so encouraging to see those who are much worse off than we are having such joy and encouragement in the Lord. And I say that not in any way to embarrass or shame us, but to recalibrate our sensibilities. We need courage. We need to build one another up, not to take the hill and make this world what we want it to be. Not to pick up stakes and go move to some proverbial promised land where we can have life just the way that we want it to be. But encourage one another to stay on target here where God has placed us. 
stay on target with weather again. God might pick you up and move you someplace else, but the mission is the same, to put the goodness of Jesus on display through our words and our actions, come what may. That is still our call. But not only does he say to encourage each other, cheer each other on in that, he says that we are to build one another up in this. Build each other up. Strengthen one another. Help each other to mature and grow because none of us just rolls out of bed naturally living this way. But again, like these soldiers that strap on their armor and then turn to the guy next to him and say, okay, are you good? Is everything strapped on right? Because the better prepared that each one of us is, the better prepared all of us will be together. And so we don't just think about our own maturity and growth and strengthening. We recognize my maturity comes as we help one another grow, as we build each other up in this. We're each called to build one another up in this faith and love and hope that Paul's calling us to. We build each other up in faith by reminding each other of who God is and what he has done, is doing, and will do for us and reminding each other he can be trusted. We build one another up by taking that faith and putting it into practice through love, through the way that we love one another, through the way that we follow Jesus' example and extending that same love even to our enemies or even to those we might disagree with on Facebook. We seek, we encourage and build one another up to show love even to our enemies or those we might disagree with because we recognize that's what Jesus did for us. He loved us first while we were still his enemies. We don't stoop to name calling. We don't stoop to insults. We don't retreat into holy huddles. We encourage one another and build one another up to put Jesus on display through our life together. We put love into practice. We build one another up in hope, a hope like he talked about in chapter one that produces endurance, steadfastness, so that even when we are mistreated by the very people that we are seeking to love, we keep going. We endure, knowing, as I said a moment ago, that. While we are not destined to suffer wrath on the day of the Lord, we are destined, chapter three, for affliction, for hardship. That's why we have need for endurance. On the day of the Lord, we are not destined to suffer wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's keep going. Over the next couple of weeks, Todd's gonna bring this letter, our study in this letter to a close. And we'll see, starting in the very next verses, that Paul just goes through like a laundry list of ways in which we can build one another up in the faith and hope and love that, we, that he talks about. He, he, he rattles it off. We were joking about it in sermon prep that it's almost like Paul's finishing and realizing, oh my gosh, I'm almost out of paper on the scroll. And he starts like writing these little things up the corner. Okay, don't forget to do this and this and this and this. And it's not meant to be a checklist as much as it is this sense of saying, okay, here, here's the drilling that we do, the practicing that we do to build each other up in these ways. We're gonna get more into it in our podcast and the Beyond Sunday podcast and discussions in that same way. But again, Jesus is coming. It will be glorious. The day of the Lord will be the time in which God decisively acts as our divine warrior 
going into battle against his enemies, bringing salvation to his people. And if you are in Christ, you are a child of that day now. And it shapes the way that we live from day to day. I'm gonna invite the band to come back up. We're gonna sing one more song before we close. And as they come up, would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for your victory. Thank you for your victory through an act of sacrificial love. Thank you for your victory through that stone that was rolled away and you walking out of that grave three days later. Thank you for the victory when you ascended to the right hand of God and sent the Holy Spirit to live within us, to transform us and empower us, to put you on display to those around us. Thank you for the promise of your ultimate and final victory on the day of the Lord and the glory of your coming and the promise that we will share in that. Lord, would you shape our identity around that day? Would you motivate us to faithfulness? God, my prayer for my life, for the life of these, my church family, is that we might be those servants that you find so doing when you return. Would you do that work in us by your grace? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.